it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, well, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. This is episode 167. Tonight, Andrew and I are going to answer a great listener question tonight. We had a really good one that's very interesting, and we thought we would go ahead and kind of dissect this. It has a few different parts, and it would give us a great chance to talk about some different things. So I'll go ahead and read the first part, and then we'll start our little dialogue. So it starts. Uh, Hello, Andrew and Dave. Thank you again for the priceless information and insight you are both providing us with. I have a few questions in relation to growth investing. What are your thoughts on growth stocks? Is their main source of price rises coming from the anticipation of increased future growth as opposed to the true representation of numbers in their financial statements? So we'll go ahead and start with that one. So Andrew, what are your thoughts on that first part of the question? Yeah, it's it's a great question. And I think you can answer it in a myriad of different ways. What's important is that you take an honest approach and don't let your biases affect what the answer to that question would be and, and how you're going to use that. Uh, as you look at stocks, whether they're value stocks, growth stocks, or any average Joe stock down on the exchange. So I think as it comes to growth stocks and value stocks or any stock, you should know that it's every stock is different. So, you know, some of them might be priced based on anticipation of future, future growth. And some might be priced because they are popular, hot and have a great idea. Even, even something uh, as, as crazy as a great idea can, can help you raise money on wall street today. So, you know, when I, when I try to think of stocks that are, they seem to be priced in anticipation of increased growth because I think that's a good place to start. You're going to have outliers on either side, but a company for me, when I look at kind of like a, a stereotypical growth stock, 
but it's still based on financial statements would be Amazon. So Amazon is a company who I believe we might have talked poorly about on the podcast before. I might have said something negative about it. If I did, I admit to being wrong on the company. The what Jeff Bezos has done with the company. And you know, we've seen it obviously through the pandemic, but as you start to unpeel the layers on this company, you'll see that there's there's actually much more to the company than just your typical prime shipping and get me three things off of their website. They have a very strong segment called AWS Amazon Web Services. And so, you know, while you look at their main the, the main face of their business with with this retail thing that they're in where they're providing really fast shipping to people who are buying online, there doesn't seem to be much growth potential there. And yet you have a PE which which seems ridiculous like a like a 70 or 100 plus, you know, depending on depending on what the earnings are and, and depending on where the price is. So somebody who maybe doesn't truly understand the company could think that the very high PE is indicative of just like a crazy extreme growth stock and and I don't think that's the case with Amazon. You can you can talk that way about other businesses, but when it comes to Amazon, they have their segment with AWS is so dominant and there's so much growth that's been coming from that segment. When I say so much growth, you know, I'm not talking about like a couple of percentage points. We're talking about 30 to 35% growth in operating income year after year because people are going to the cloud. And so you're seeing this even more with the coronavirus and COVID, people staying at home, businesses realizing they need to get digital, and a lot of businesses either beefing up their IT infrastructure or creating new ones, or simply just hitching a ride on Amazon's AWS and letting Amazon take care of the infrastructure for them and provide them with digital internet and a cloud platform that they can use for their whole entire company. And so, you know, even before this whole pandemic happened, AWS was seeing 30 plus percent growth for for several years now. And it's gotten to the point where that segment actually has as much operating income as their entire retail segment. So I think when people talk about Amazon, and and I think the narrative is shifting now and and you should see it shift more and more as people get more educated on it. You have a very low margin business and you know they really cut competitors completely out by shrinking margins so thin that it was impossible to compete against them in retail. But on the flip side, they have this wildly profitable, huge margin business that is basically mapping out the infrastructure for the whole entire globe. And you still have whole parts of the globe which are not online like we are in a developed country like the United States, for example. So a lot of potential there, a lot of devices that still need a hookup to the cloud that either haven't been invented or aren't really being purchased or used around around the home. And you just have a lot of growth that that segment has seen. And when you combine that with 
some other metrics like free cash flows, as an example, the company is actually not astronomically priced to the effect that we're seeing a dot-com bubble valuation. They're priced kind of similar. At least, at least there's there's a relationship between what's going on with their financials, and so in that sense, it's it's more it's it's more expensive than I'd like to see, and it's obviously more expensive for my own tastes because I'm not invested in the stock and I have no plans to be at the price that it's at now compared to their financials. But it's a good example of a growth stock that might be expensive, but for a good reason. That's an excellent point, and I love that example. I, uh, a company that comes to mind for me along those same lines is somebody like Microsoft. Uh, it it has everything you want. It really does. It's a it's a fantastic company. It has great products. It's done fantastically well with with the cloud. Uh, Andrew was talking about Amazon and AWS. Uh, Microsoft has their Azure. That is their platform of choice for the cloud, and they are one of the big three alongside Google. And Microsoft has ridden that Azure cloud program to the heights that it is now. Uh, I remember when I bought the company, when I first started investing around $39, $38. Uh, seems like a steal now. Uh, I can't believe I was nervous about buying it back then, but now it seems like a, that seems like a steal. But uh, it's currently at $226 a share, give or take. But some numbers just to kind of throw at you to talk about some of the things that uh, are going to be coming up in the question. One of the things that when you think about Microsoft, and this is a great part of his question, is the growth already built in the anticipation? And it absolutely is. Uh, It's not so evident with a company like Microsoft because the anticipation of them growing into the revenues that people think they're going to do, they're most likely going to do. In this circumstance, the, the PE for Microsoft, for example, is around 40, which is high, which is a lot higher than I personally feel comfortable looking at. But by the same token, it's not bubble territory. But it, you can't argue that it's not expensive. But the bigger question comes into, is, is everything different now? And have we progressed so far in the last 15 or 20 years since we had the dot-com, for example, bubble burst? Have we changed that much that these companies are worth the price that you're going to pay for them? And that's, that's the, I guess, the big question. And that's what nobody can tell you yes or no. It really comes down to what your risk tolerance is and how you feel about those investing in those kinds of stocks and in putting down your money for that kind of thing. Uh, Microsoft, again, if you look at the financials, they just, they're staggering. Uh, they have growth in just about everything you can think of from revenue to earnings. Uh, their margins are growing. The dividend is growing. The debt is going down. It's everything that you would ever want in a company. It sounds fantastic. And if it sounds like I drank the Kool-Aid, I did read through some of their 10Ks and, and I liked everything I saw except for the price. Uh, the margins were ridiculous. Uh, and this is coming from somebody who spends a lot of time looking at banks. And so those margins that we're talking about for a Microsoft versus JP Morgan, for example, are shockingly high. And 
if a bank was getting that, oh my God, everybody would want to buy a bank, <laughs> but they aren't. And I think that's where some of this comes into, if I can hazard a guess, is that I feel like that some of the exuberance that is in the market right now is in part because you're seeing businesses now that are growing margins, for example, that are staggeringly high than what we're used to seeing in the S&P 500. For example, some of the companies that kind of dominated the S&P even 10 years ago, somebody like uh, Exxon or GE, any of those companies would kill to have an operating margin of 35% or a net margin of 30%. And when I'm referring to those, what I'm talking about is the operating profit that the company generates compared to the revenue and the higher the number, the better, because that gives you more flexibility to do stuff. So for example, Kroger, which is a grocery store, uh, last quarter, they came in around 2.6% for their net margin, which means it's really narrow. So they have to be uber conservative and uber focused on things like shrinkage, which means theft and the cost that they're paying for things. And payroll becomes a much bigger issue because you have to pay far more attention to those kinds of things than when you're cranking out 30% margins because you got all this money to play with. So it, it's, it's, it's different. And I think some of those things that we're seeing in the market now, especially with these tech companies, uh, with Amazon, Google, Microsoft, uh, Facebook, uh, Intel, AMD, it's just go on and on and on and on. Even Oracle and Cisco, which are air quotes considered old companies, even they have fantastic margins compared to some of the industrial type companies that were, were used to dominating the S and P 500 or the NASDAQ or even the, the Dow. So when those things were forefront of everybody's investments portfolios and those are the companies people are talking about and looking at they were much more narrow margins and more old school i guess is a better way of putting it and now you look at these tech companies and they're exciting and it's 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 awesome you see all these huge margins and these huge growth ratios and that's what i think gets people excited about investing in some of these companies so that's where i think a lot of the exuberance comes from is from seeing these things. Now, for me, time will tell whether this is going to be different. And the four, I guess, most famous words in the market that you hear all the time is this time it's different. Well, <laughs> it never has proven to be different. That's, I guess that's the big question. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money. Not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances.
Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Let's be honest here. Your sex life is important. It helps us feel more confident and boosts our happiness. But sometimes we struggle to perform. Our life gets in the way. This is where hymns can help. With their convenient and discreet online platform, you can get help for your erectile dysfunction from the comfort and privacy of your own home. No more waiting rooms, no more awkward conversations, just a simple, direct path to treatment that works around your life, not interrupts it. Invest in your health today. Hims is changing men's health care by providing access to affordable sexual health treatments from the comfort of your couch. Hims provides access to doctor-trusted ED treatment options such as chewable hard mints, brand-name treatments like Viagra, or generic alternatives for up to 95% cheaper. The process is simple and 100% online, no uncomfortable doctor visits. Answer a series of questions on their site, and a medical provider will determine the right treatment option. If prescribed, your medication ships to you free, no insurance is needed. If ED is getting you down, it's time you join the hundreds of thousands of trusted HIMS subscribers and get treated. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash investing. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash investing for your personalized ED treatment options. Hymns.com slash investing. Hard mints are chewable compounded products which are not approved by or verified for safety and effectiveness by the FDA. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See website for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. I love what you you brought up margins because I think it really contributes in a very big way to the whole discussion because, you know, kind of internally embedded in this question is growth versus value. And I think that's always every time you hear those two, because they're kind of two two guys on the opposite side and they're battling it out against each other. And I really think that we, we don't, we, we need to look outside of that and really get down to the difference between, you know, what's making this stock a growth stock. And if, if, if this time really is different, because, so 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 think about this for a second. So the reason why value works and you know I can't take credit for this this was something I heard from Jeremy Grantham in an interview he did 
so the reason value investing works is because you have mean reversion. And so what mean reversion is somebody with high profit margins, as an example, will eventually get lower profit margins because a competitor will see the high profit margins. And so obviously they'll enter into the space that's going to reduce profit margins and make the pie smaller. And so a stock that was trading at 50 PE with its, let's say, 30% margins, those margins drop to 20% or 15%, that PE is going to shrink down to something like a 20 or a 15. And now all of a sudden you have a huge crash in the stock as that PE mean reverts down to a more normal level. And so the reason for that mean reversion in the price and the PE was driven first from the fundamentals and the financials, right? So you had a change in the industry, a change in the business model, and that eventually made its way to the stock market. And so, you know, at a, at the period of time where that industry was growing or that stock was growing and its margins were great or getting better, really great financials, the stock did great. And then once that crashed, everything mean reverted. So when you think about the, like the examples you gave, Dave, were perfect. Exxon, GE, uh, I can't think of an, anybody else up there. I mean, you had other like bubbles that, that didn't have good financials, but companies that did, uh, a company like Exxon, their, they had their, their margins shrank because everybody around the world got into oil and, and really drove the price down because supplies went up. And you had a lot of different geopolitical things happen in the meantime, and a huge boom in shale drilling in the United States, which did not help any of the any of those oil majors because now you have a bunch of supply and that drives the price of oil down. So you know, competition really eroded what Exxon had. If we take a look at Amazon, Microsoft, Google, Facebook, I think that's where it gets sticky and it's it's a bit different because okay let's take facebook as an example somebody could come in and try to make a competing social network but just because somebody does it does that mean they're going to be able to take market share from facebook because net social networks are really an all or nothing thing either you have the community or you don't and so you know facebook competes against twitter facebook might compete against pinterest right but but they're really just kind of competing for everybody's attention. And so in a way, yeah, you have new entrants who come in and they'll take a little bit of market share from Facebook and cause margins to shrink. And so, you know, in a way, all right, th- th- they are in a pretty level competitive playing field. But, you know, once somebody's on Facebook, it's really hard for for another business to bring them out of Facebook. And so they can kind of keep margins pretty high. Really for them, they just need to keep people on the platform. But when you maybe shift that to something like Apple would be a good example. And I'm going to take just a very small sliver of Apple. Let's look at their app store. And this was something that was mentioned in the, um, the recent trial that they had with, with the, the big tech against Congress, right? It wasn't a trial. It was, it was, uh, I'm obviously not a legal expert, but it was Dave, what, what, what was, what do you call it? A hearing. A hearing. Okay. A hearing. Is that, is that that's a bit different from a trial, right? It is, yes, much. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. I, okay. Who cares about the label anyway? So you have their app store, and 
basically they're charging developers a certain percentage in order to be on their platform. The problem with that is that if there aren't other app stores that are coming into the market, uh, Apple can kind of charge whatever they want. And so in a, in a, in a market like going back to Exxon with oil, where somebody can come in and find a place to drill, it's very expensive, of course, but you know, there's, there's so many places around, around the country or around the globe where you can put a drill down and get down, get some of that nice oil and put it out in the market with something like an app store. I mean, people are either doing an iPhone or they're doing an Android and there's not, there's not much in between, like no offense to the the Google phones, but you know, there's, it's, it's really, it, it, the attention there is really focused just on those two things. And so where an, as a small example of an app store, which has probably fantastic margins for Apple just running that app store and letting developers make the apps, letting people download the apps, you don't really have a place for a competitor to seriously compete and drive those margins down. I mean, does that maybe, does that maybe cause an argument for a company with those type of, maybe Warren Buffett would call it a competitive moat, right? Where where there's not a, a an entry that can erode profit margins and cause mean reversion and therefore keep valuations long higher longer for those particular businesses. That's a very good point. But I, the, the opposite side of that argument then is that the App Store in particular is, is under some fire because of the whole... Um, so the 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 opposite of that, I guess the the counter argument to that, I guess, is that the regulation, the regulatory problem that Apple could run into and Google is is facing as well, is the fact that if that lawsuit with Epic, the people that create Fortnite, if that goes through and they win, that could be a huge blow to Apple's moat in regards to the app store and that could seriously damage their ability to charge those harm the the high rates that they charge the people and that would affect the the profit margins and i know that uh google has been under some scrutiny even since the hearings that we are that you mentioned about possibly breaking them up uh that's one of the companies that i think Congress has focused more on of the the ones that were there, uh, aside from Amazon and Facebook. And so I wonder if those would be competitors to those kinds of ideas of this, this time it's different or this time it could be different. And the other aspect of that too, thinking a little bit along the lines with Facebook one of the arguments that I've heard about Facebook as far as them being a growth stock is eventually they'll, they're going to max out on how many people they can have on the platform Now you mentioned that they have to keep people on the platform, but they also have to grow the users on the platform. And eventually they're just going to run out of human beings on the earth <laughs> to well, let me, they, they let can me only fight on that, so many people though. Let me fight on that though. Like, okay. I don't know how much you use it, but you've seen there. It seems like they're trying to promote the marketplace tab on there. Have you? Are you familiar with with the Facebook marketplace? I am. So yeah, you know, I sold it's, a few it's, things on there. 
I'm like a platform like that where you have that much attention. It makes you wonder if the growth is not in the user base, but in monetizing that user base. So by getting into something like marketplace, it's almost like they're taking on Craigslist, you know, which could be a whole new revenue and income stream for them. And then who knows what they come up with next. Right. Yeah. No, I, I, I would agree with that. And I know that uh, I haven't heard anything recently about this, but I know they were uh, dabbling with the whole slash bank cryptocurrency idea. I haven't, I haven't heard anything about that in a little while, but I don't know whether that, where that went, but I know that they were discussing that. So like you said, that is certainly a, another revenue stream for them. I guess something that I wanted to talk a little bit about in regards to the, the whole growth thing versus value somewhere along the line, it got where they became two separate camps. And I know that, uh, uh, Buffett has talked about this in his shareholder letters that you can't have one without the other, that value investors really want to buy a company like Microsoft, for example, but they want to buy it at a price that they can, that they think is reasonable. So that all the stuff that you see in these tech companies are all things that we all love as value investors. We just feel like the price is too high. And I think that's really what it comes down to. What are your thoughts on that? I I probably am wrong, but I think there's because I who knows who know who knows what people are doing out there, who knows what they're thinking. But in my opinion, it seems like the two camps you mentioned. I feel like there's a ton of growth people who don't like they they don't even they don't even know what the word valuation means, or they don't even care. Mm-hmm. And then it seems like you have a bunch of right. value people who are looking at tech stocks and saying, well, these aren't the same valuation metrics as an industrial, so I'm not going to look at them either. No, I would agree with that, but I I, I wonder if the... I wonder if somebody... Uh, I, I feel like some of that is is morphing a little bit. Uh, and a, a perfect example of, the, is that, of that is is what Vitaly was talking about with us a few weeks ago with his discussions on Uber and his idea of how to look at a company like that, which would probably fall into this growth category of companies in a way, but he's been able to wrap his brain around where he thinks the company is going to be in five or 10 years. And he can find value in that as he, as it goes along. And even though the company is technically losing money right now, different segments of the business are actually well before COVID. We're, we're doing well and we're improving and the margins for those were improving. But now with COVID, it's kind of a little bit on pause, I think. But I, I, I wonder if some of that is, is morphing a little bit too. I think, I think it depends on, I suppose, which, how rigid you want to be in each camp. Uh, I know that. Growth investors tend to have a uh, a focus on top line numbers, where value investors, I think, are more looking at bottom line numbers and other aspects of the business as opposed to just looking at seeing that revenue go, you know, vertical. That's true, and I'm probably just mentioning that because they're typically the loudest and the dumbest, right? Who are who are screaming from the, <laughs> yeah. from the rooftops about either way. Right. I think, but I also wonder if the, if the retail investors that have been talked a lot about, I wonder if that 
touches on some of that to the excitement and the FOMO and some of those other things of missing out on some of these companies as well. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. I, I did want to um, touch on another part of his question here. He says, um, should they be a part of my diversified portfolio alongside traditional value stocks? I question how companies reaching all-time highs continue rising, especially when they seem ridiculously overvalued. Uh, thank you for both for your time and would love to hear your takes on this, Dylan. Yeah, I mean, it, at the end of the day, it comes down to risk tolerance. It's, you know, and, and the, what I think you really need to challenge what, um, what you're considering a growth stock. So, you know, we kind of talked about some, some good growth stocks. Let's talk about some bad ones. I think when I look at a company like Yelp as an example, like di- directly to what you were saying, Dave, I mean, the, the top line numbers on this company are just, out of this world. So, you know, I'm looking at, let's, you could go all the way back to like 2010. They had 48 million in revenue. Now they have 1 billion in revenue, right? So we're talking about not just double digit growth in revenue every year, but doubling in two years and then doubling in another two years, growing really fast. And then on the other side, you look at it from a value investing standpoint and they have a negative PE. They have like a, 90% gross margins over 10 over a 10 year period. So, you know, kind of like a, a, a lot of weird things going on there, but it was it was a company that I had just stumbled on and it wasn't anything I ever thought about purchasing, but I, as I was learning more and more about the company, this was this was something where management was buying a lot of stocks with with their profits and so it was just a very weird thing for me to look at when I looked at how they were using this free cash flow. And it was almost like they were trying to be a, a holding company of stocks rather than just focusing on their, on their business. And having, you know, you, you would expect a growth company to come out of a period where they're losing money uh, after a few years. But they've just consistently continued to just burn through cash and and not have much profits to show, even though they have these huge gross margins. And so, you know, there's a big difference, I think, between a company like a Yelp and a company like an Amazon. And you really need to understand what the financials are saying and and what management is doing and and whether that's, you know, a bad business model or it's bad capital allocation decisions. Or, you know, whether it's the market just thinks that this thing is is the next best thing since life spread and they're willing to pay anything for it, any of those situations can end up poorly for shareholders. And so you really need to take it on a case-by-case basis. And to answer the question, I'm going to say I'm not going to give you an answer because it depends on you. And then it also depends on what are you calling a growth stock? And if you're calling a growth stock, like Dave defined it as something where it has value because there's growth as a component, then yeah, of course you should be buying those. But if you're talking about a growth stock, as in it's valued like Cisco was in 1999 at a 300 PE, or it's valued like some stock over here on the cloud and 
you know, has a PE of a thousand, or if it's a stock that maybe used to be a growth stock and has some really great financials, but other places where the business is really bad, any of those negative things, and maybe then a stock like that shouldn't be in your portfolio. And so I think as we try to define how we think about growth and value, these are the type of hard questions we need to ask and we need to answer and we need to understand. And that helps form your own personal answer when it comes to your portfolio. I love that answer. And I I agree with what you're saying and looking at different companies and, and trying to, I guess the best way of putting it is trying to decide whether that fits with what you're comfortable with. It really comes down to the risk. It really comes down to whether you're comfortable buying that particular company and having it as part of your portfolio and taking the gamble that it will continue to improve. And when you start talking about these extremely high PEs and all the different raging numbers that you may see out of a company like Tesla, for example, their PE right now is 1600, 1600. Uh, it's, it's monstrously high. It's just, it's stupid high. Uh, I read somewhere today on Twitter that a guy did some calculations. And if you, if you looked at the price, if you even took, took the price of the, like the Schiller PE, which is kind of the, the, the overall PE of, of the stock market, People are valuing a share of Tesla right now as if the company was making $350 million in earnings a year, not revenue, earnings a year. And last year, it made $472 million. So <laughs> wrap your brain around that. That's it's It's insane. And I don't think any sane person could say that it's not insane. Have people made money on it? Yep, they have. Absolutely, they have. But the the bigger question is, is not if the bubble is going to burst, it's more when. And just the margins alone, we were talking about that. People, People get excited about Tesla and they think about it as a tech company, for example. And the problem is, is that when you look at the margins of that company and compare them to somebody like Amazon or Microsoft or Google, uh, they pale in comparison. I was looking at Tesla's revenue numbers here just a few months ago, and their net margin was a little over 2% last year for the whole year. Microsoft's was 33%. Amazon's was probably in the same breath, and I know Google's was as well. So the amount of money that those companies are making is just astronomically huge. So I guess the question you have to ask yourself is when you get, when you get to those high of numbers, then it becomes how much higher can it really go? And is it something that is, is going to be part of your long-term strategy? Now, I'll back up here for a second and, and take something that, that Andy Schuler, another contributor, great contributor on our site, uh, he talked a little bit about this in one of his blog posts, uh, talking about having fun money and playing with something like this. I don't, I don't have an issue with somebody going, you know, I want to buy a couple shares of Yelp just for giggles or, you know, buy a half a sliver of, of Tesla just to say you own it and see what kind of money you can make on it. But if you're putting your whole portfolio in a company like a Yelp or, or something else along those, those lines, then it becomes more akin to gambling. And if you're 
looking at having income down the road and all the things that Andrew and I have preached over the last three or four years, then those are the companies that are not, you, you don't want to have them be a big part of your portfolio. And people can get upset about what I'm saying, but really it comes down to when we're investing, we want to try to be as stable about it as we possibly can. And there are going to be times when you miss out on things. Buffett talks all the time about how he missed out on Amazon. He had a chance to invest in it early on and he missed it. He said, I didn't get it. I missed it. And he, you know, talks about that mistake. And there are going to be times when you're going to miss out on companies. It's just, it's just, you can't look at every single thing. It's just not possible. But there are times when you see something and it goes through the roof and then everybody's talking about it. And I'm going to use Bitcoin as an example. Uh, a few years ago, I remember the craze of Bitcoin. Everybody was going crazy on it. When you know things are a bubble are when you have your Hispanic speaking kitchen person come and ask you through an interpreter if they should buy Bitcoin or not. That's when you know things are a bubble. Because these are things that people are not talking about on an everyday basis. They're only talking about it because it's gotten so much attention and it's gone, it's gotten so expensive that now people think that they're missing out and they want to, they want to get involved. And that's where a lot of the things that we're talking about tonight, you have to kind of balance them as much as you can and try to be cognizant of that. But again, it all comes back to risk. What can you go to bed at night and not stress about? I just bought. I put half of my portfolio in this particular company and oh my God, what's going to happen tomorrow because they got sued or something happened. You know, God forbid there was a horrible accident and something happened or a hurricane came through there and destroyed their factory, whatever it may be. Those are all things that you have to take into consideration when you're considering all these things. So I hope that helps. I, I think it does a lot. And if I can just leave a visual to maybe help because the idea of trying to balance between fear of missing out and making decent stock picks. It's, it's a really tough battle and it's something if you're going to be an investor, you have to deal with fear of missing out your whole entire life. So I, I, I was out shopping for shoes with my daughter and I thought it kind of makes for a good visual. You have buy shoes for a kid when, when they're young and you can get them a couple sizes big and they'll still grow into them. So if you think about growth stocks in that way, are you going to be okay if, if you pay a little bit more for a bigger size, right? If that's our metaphor, the bigger size is, is the, the more expensive valuation. Are you going to be okay if you get one, maybe like a half size, one size bigger? Yeah, you know, probably in the next six months, we'll, we'll probably still be fine. But if, if you get a size 12 shoe, you know, on somebody who's a size four, those that that's probably not going to be a worthwhile purchase and at the same time if you get a shoe that's even one size bigger but this person's feet are shrinking and not getting bigger then that's probably not a good purchase either so when you're thinking about your stocks goes it really goes back to that margin of safety and if you are going to overpay for growth make sure you're overpaying by like half a size and not 12 sizes 
All right, folks. Well, that's going to wrap up our conversation for this evening. I wanted to thank Dylan for taking the time to send us that fabulous question and keep sending us all these great questions, guys. We really enjoy it. And it's a lot of fun for us to talk about these different topics and give us a little bit of warning back to you guys. So without any further ado, I'm going to go ahead and sign us off. You guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. Have a great week and we'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. 